This is the Laravel News Podcast, your one-stop podcast to find out about Laravel-related news, tutorials, packages, and more. Here are your hosts, Jake Bennett and Michael Dorenda. Click. Clickage. Clicker. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to a new episode of the Laravel News Podcast. This is episode... 59. 59. Episode 59. You caught up with us recently because we were a week late in releasing an episode. And so we're just trying to figure out where we're at in our schedules. So we are reestablishing this week as the week that we're doing Laravel News. So if this is the second week in a row and you don't want to hear this podcast, well... Then you can just turn it off yeah. right now, I suppose. Too bad. But you want to listen. We're doing it anyway. You want to listen. We got some good stuff going on here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So last time we caught all, we've got like one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, seven new things. And maybe we can actually get to some community links today, huh? Yeah, I think so. It's been a little while since we did the community rounds. It has been. Um, yeah, I, I'm looking through here and I see some interesting stuff down here that we could talk about. Specifically, mm -hmm. SVGs with Laravel Blade. Ooh. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm using that actually as of today. Recently. There you go. Yeah. There you go. Yes. Okay. Hey, so let's jump right into this. 5.6.11 as I think of the last uh, update that we haven't talked about yet. Is that right? I think, yeah, that is that is correct. Let's talk about that. So 5.6.10 was available as of Friday, which included a patch for carbon. What was the patch for carbon? I'm not sure specifically what it was. There were a few fixes that I believe carbon had a fix which was a breaking change, which was later realized. So I think Taylor tweeted something about this where basically Carbon created a patch. So Laravel created a patch release. Turned out that Carbon had made a breaking change inadvertently in their patch release. So then they put out another patch release, which meant that Laravel had to put out an, a new patch release to account for Carbon's patch release. So these are the kind of things that happen. You know, it's it's the unfortunate side effect you know you think you've got your your testing all done and and sometimes you know things things that are in user land you don't necessarily anticipate and so you've got to move quickly and get things sorted out it happens it happens hey not related to five six ten but related to carbon mm. momento have you ever run into this weird problem david hemhill ran into it recently and i've run into it in the past and i thought i would just mention it here for those of us who may have forgotten do you, know what I'm, do you know what I'm about to talk about with this one? I think so. Yeah. So I'm going to talk about the add month or sub month. Here's what it is. Uh, if you uh, have a date, let's say you're on February. Actually, let's say you're on January. 31 days in January, right? Mm -hmm. So there's 31 days. So if you're on January 31st, and let's say, for instance, that you have a donation that somebody has made on the January 31st, and they've decided to make it a monthly donation. So you mm -hmm. just mark that donation as coming in on the 31st and the next run at date, you go ahead and say, hey, Carbon, add month to the 31st. And now it's going to put the next run at date for the end of February, right? You may already start to see the problem with this. January has 31 days. February does not. February only has 28 days. Yeah. So uh, if you are working in the native PHP date time stuff, this is the actual behavior is if you add a month, uh, in this case, it would go ahead and overflow February and it would push it to March 1st. 
is what's, what ends up mm. happening. In carbon, the behavior is the exact same on purpose to match the PHP stuff. But this can get you in pretty big trouble pretty quickly, right? So if you're on January 31st, you say add month, it will push you to March 1st, which can lead to some really unexpected weird stuff. Mm. So the solution to that is to use add month, no overflow. And that is the method name, which will prevent it from overflowing that month uh, moving on to the next one. The same thing happens when you are in March, uh, the end of March and you say sub month, right? And you're going to February. If you're uh, at the end of March and you do sub month and there is no day that matches that in February, you're going to end up with the same problem, right? Mm -hmm. So it's just something to be aware of. And again, it's sub month, no overflow if you want to use it that way. Uh, but just something as you're moving forward that you'll want to account for in your tests. And I would suggest... I can't imagine that anybody would actually usually want that behavior. So yeah. I've kind of just resorted to always using add month, no overflow and sub month, no overflow whenever I have mm -hmm. to use those. I think we decided as well that there is a method that will toggle that globally for carbon. The last time we spoke about that. Well, is there? Maybe. Yeah. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. The other thing to be aware of is that MySQL will actually behave slightly differently in that MySQL actually does the no overflow by default. So... If you were to do a date add interval one month, it would actually roll backwards. So if you went from the 29th or the 31st of January, if you add one month, it would actually drop back to February 28th. Interesting. Yeah, which yeah, is so what I would, yeah. Which is what you would expect, which, right. would, which is what you probably want realistically. Um, so something to be mindful of, inconsistencies there as well. Yeah, yeah. Good point. Okay, there was a couple other things in 5.6.10 that were cool or mentionable here. So the first one is blueprint drop morphs. So this is something you'd use in your migrations uh, if you decide to use, well, I suppose I was going to say if you use down methods, this, you could use this in an up method though, I suppose though too. So this, use, this is used to indicate which polymorphic columns uh, and indexes should be dropped. Question for you, do you define your relationships at the database level? Ever. Do I define my relationships? So at like the in your migrations, level? do you say like you can say like cascade to like so like if you have if you have a users table and you have a posts table, uh, do yep. you do like a foreign key constraints on all that? Yeah, generally speaking, I would not on not on polymorphics. I don't think you can. For belongs to, has one, has many, those you know, many to many relationships, I I would generally do that. You'll and define those in your migrations. Yeah, I would define those in the migrations and then I would specify like on update cascade or on update restrict um, just yeah. so that it's all explicit and it's clear in there what what the behavior is without having to dig into Laravel's migration stuff to figure out what the what their defaults are. The only pain that I've found with that is when you're trying to do tests and you don't want to have to build that whole world, especially if there's some really deeply nested relationships. Like if you have like, a comment that belongs to a post that belongs to a user and mm -hmm. I just want to like test something in between there or whatever I'll try and make a comment and I'll say like this belongs to post number one and the database complaints says there is no post number one yeah mm -hmm. you know what I mean sounds like you want Caleb Porzio's uh what is it model factory stories or something that he was talking about a while ago that that it can what build it? up that world for you he was talking about the same pain point that you just brought up where you, you know, if you want to do 
users and posts and comments. And then if you try and do the the comment and, and the post doesn't exist or the user doesn't exist, you run into those kind of errors. He was yeah. talking about some kind of functionality where you would basically come up with a story or a you know an encapsulation of all of those different factories so that sure, you could sure. ask for a you know a user with posts and comments or something like that and it would build all that up they do actually a, have in in the factories a, a cool way to do that so that you can you can actually create those parent relationships really easily straight within your factory you can do that i just i used to do that all the time and then it ended up being more of a pain than it was worth yeah so i just stopped doing it yeah so that's probably not a great idea, but that's how I do it. So, <laughs> I mean, anyway. it might make your test a bit more painful, but it certainly makes your application a little more robust. And you don't have to worry about, you know, things hanging around in your database later on if you don't want them there. Yeah, true story. Okay, in addition to that, we also have mailables uh, now have the ability to attach a file to a message from storage. So there is two new methods. There is attach uh, from storage. And then there's attach from storage disk. So if you do attach from storage, it just uses your default storage device. So if that's local or if it's cloud, uh, or you can say attach from storage disk where you can then specify which disk you want to use. Uh, so this is this is pretty cool. You could save something to your storage. So if like, for instance, you're saving invoices to your storage and somebody requests re-requests the invoice and they want to have it emailed to them or something, you could do that. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, there's all sorts of things you could do here, but I thought that was pretty cool. It's just so convenient. These things, the things with the storage stuff, like temporary URL, or there's this, you know, the new download method that will return a, a response, a download response for you. Uh, it's just these little convenient things that uh, when you need them, they're just super handy to not have yeah. to program yourself. And the convenience things that you look at and you go, where was that? <laughs> how yep. and how have you just yeah. stumbled upon this now? Yeah. And Jonathan Rennick is the one who uh, did that. And he he's done a lot of these ones with the storage stuff recently. So thanks to him. Yeah, thank you. There's one more uh, new change in 5.6.10, which is the or where day, or where month, or where year. Do you want to talk about that for us? Uh, yeah, so previously you would have to have, um, with your or where methods, done like a DB raw if you wanted to check specific components of dates. So if you wanted to check if the you're storing a date time or a timestamp in the database and you wanted to find all records where the year was 2017 or the month was, you know, June or something like that, what this would allow you to do instead of having to do the, the calls to DB raw, you could just use where day or where month or where year. So just, again, these little convenience things that, that creep into the framework from time to time. Yeah, I didn't even know these existed, actually. The where day, where month, where year. The only thing I knew was where date and where mm -hmm. between. There's a, so those are both really handy and they kind of, again, save you from having to do these kind of raw transforms. Mm -hmm. But where day, where month, and where year, that's really convenient. Uh, so you can yeah. just say like where day... And then you pass in the column created at equals one. So whenever anything that's created on the first day of the month, go look at that sort of thing. That's pretty cool. That's really yeah. Neat. So I'm pretty sure we had the the where day, the where month, yes. and the where year. But these are now adding the all where days because previously it was all and you know you'd have right. to do where day, where day, where day, or whatever where day, where month, where year. So that would be boolean and operations. Whereas now we've got the the all operations as well. Yep, you got it. Okay, I think that is. About it, the vpre was added to the dropdown link in the app.stub, which is, uh, this was the thing that was preventing uh, cross-site scripting. Mm -hmm. I think that's added now in there for you. So there we go. That's 5.6.10 and 5.6.11. Yeah. Okay. 
Let's talk about the uh, Scaling Laravel course by Chris Fidao. So Chris talked yeah. about this a little bit when we did Laravel or, uh, sorry, not Laravel, uh, Laracon Online. He mm -hmm. gave a talk this year and kind of uh, hinted at the fact that he was going to be releasing the Scaling Laravel course. Have you had a chance to look, take a look at that? Not the course itself, but I have been, you know, watching the videos that he's been releasing on Twitter over the last sort of weeks and months, just teasing at the the kind of stuff that he's going to be talking about. I did sit down probably three or four weeks ago and watch the Performant Laravel course, which was free. Yes. Yeah. Um, which which was sort of some of the more base level optimizations that are also included in in this scaling laravel course yeah uh so this this course is uh you can get it for 20 percent off right now it covers server setup and security optimization for uh php F fpm op cache for your network in-depth queues so learning how to do that for echo pusher vue.js load balancing scaling on forge advanced to mysql etc 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 he's he's got service service for hackers and now he's got this, this performant Laravel or scaling Laravel, I'm sorry. So yeah, if that's something that you feel like you're going to have to learn about, which I think I'm going to have to learn about pretty quickly here, specifically the load balancing stuff. Mm -hmm. I know the I know the concepts of load balancing. I understand how it works, but I know that there are some finer detail points that I don't have any clue about, like how um, sessions and cookies and all that stuff gets handled across those load balance things. Mm -hmm. In addition to that, like the idea of broadcast to our let's see how let's see what it is if you have an event that you're consuming on the front end so i had to deal with this today if you have an event that you're consuming on the front end with something like echo right so you're making you you have an event that's getting fired it's getting broadcast to pusher and then your front end is consuming that 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 uh, pusher event right and making mm -hmm. something happen uh, there will be a lot of instances where you might want to have your user click something on the front end and your front end will update automatically before it gets a response back. So for example, if you're deploying something on Envoy, right, you click deploy and it um, um, immediately starts that spinner going. Mm -hmm. Well, it's doing that before it gets a, a uh, pushback from pusher, right? But if there's anybody else on your team that's also looking at the same page, it's going to get broadcast to them, right? So the idea is that you only want to broadcast it to the other people who are listening. So if you have a load balancer, this causes a little bit of a problem because it can't tell what IP it's coming from. And that's kind of how it builds that signature to know that you you need to ignore right. it, that your pusher mm -hmm. instance needs to ignore it. So this is handled using trusted proxies, which Chris built. But this is these are like those little things, those finer detail points that you don't know about until you get into the problem, right? Or until you've gotten yeah. bit by it, until it's too late. Right. Yep. So if this is if any of these things or something that sound like something you're going to need to know, Chris has been doing this for years and years and years and years. And so I would highly recommend the course. Check it out. Uh, show Chris some love. He's been a long time uh, community member. We really appreciate all he does. Yeah, there are there are also two different packages available. There is the the core modules package, which includes all but the advanced MySQL modules. So if you want the advanced MySQL stuff, it is. I think it was probably about thirty or forty dollars more than the base package. There's there's a ton of content there. There's you know heaps of video. Chris is always you know pretty keen to to help people out on Twitter, and he's as you mentioned he's been around the community for a long long time. So we thank him. Um, and don't forget that there are also if you wanted to get a taste of these kind of things, there's the performant Laravel and the scaling on Forge mini mini series available that you can check out. Uh, we'll link all of that up in the show notes, of course. Awesome. Um, did you see this testing view components with Laravel Desk article? 
by our good friend Jeff Ocha. Jeff Ocha. I did not. I saw it and I gave it a quick read. As he talks about using, basically, he, he goes through and sets up a little to-do list using, you know, an API endpoint and a view component. Mm-hmm. And he goes through and talks about basically how to test from the beginning all the way to the end. So how to test your backend code, how to test your front end code, how to test the component itself with Laravel Dusk. So he talks about how Laravel is, you know, an expressive, easy to use broader, browser automation tool and testing API. So the cool thing about um, Dusk is that it, it runs in a headless Chrome browser. And so everything that's going to be rendered to your page is exactly as it's going to be when it's running the Dusk test. So you have access to mm-hmm. all the classes and things like that. With that in mind, you can basically build out an exact click-through of what you want to happen and then being able to check the states. It's almost sort of like snapshot testing. Right, okay. If you know what snapshot testing is, right? So mm-hmm. snapshot testing would be like, okay, I assert after I kind of do these certain things that my my component will look like this or the HTML will look like this, which is really great. The only thing is it sort of makes your tests a little bit fragile because they're really tied to the HTML on the, on the page, Yeah. right? Yeah. With snapshot tests, the good thing is that you can just say like update, update snapshot, and it'll just say, okay, that's the new normal, right? The only problem is with the dust tests, you kind of have to redo it manually. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? So like if a yeah. Yeah, if yeah, a yeah. class changed or something in your HTML, you're going to have to rebuild that test or modify that test in order to be able to get yeah. it to pass again. Yeah, this is this is an issue. Like the whole snapshot thing is an issue we came across with some stuff I was doing at my last job where we had like fixtures of of a third-party API. And so when we would run the test or the test suite, we'd be like, yeah, this is all all green. And then then they updated the the return formats or they they changed some part of the of the API and then everything sort of exploded. So it's it's a it's a real pain to keep your tests updated past a certain point. They're okay to get things started, but there's probably more dynamic ways of doing it that, that can yeah. be introduced. Yeah, so if uh, on the most recent, I don't know if it's the most recent, but one of the recent episodes of Full Stack Radio, Adam has, I don't know his name, sorry, whoever you are. I know you've done a lot of work with the uh, view testing, test utils. All right, so he was on mm-hmm. there talking about view test utils and kind of how you can do like unit tests on your components. And then uh, yeah. he, he does snapshot testing to kind of verify the HTML output. Mm-hmm. Um, so that seems like a really good combination. Jeff Ocha here pointed out at the end of the article, which I think is important though, that you don't have to be using, or a lot of times you might not be using something like Vue, right? There's a lot of us who have legacy code bases who are using jQuery or something else, and you don't have jQuery test utils, right? There's no such thing. Yeah. So Dusk is a great candidate to test those sorts of things and make sure that uh, that code is running as expected. And if you've ever had to do this, where like you go and run the login form like a million times, right? Just to make sure that everything's going to work right. Or if you're like trying to make it so that like they get a sale pop up if it's their first time logging in or whatever, right? Those are things you can all automate through Dusk and you don't have to, it's it's not anything like JavaScript specific. Uh, You can Mm -hmm. just kind of, anything that you would do manually, you can automate with Dusk. So that's what I love about it. In any case, this is a great article. It really goes through testing API endpoints, testing controllers, testing JavaScript and view component behaviors, testing authentication. It goes through the whole thing. It's pretty succinct. So if you've never done any of that before, take a look at it. It would take you probably 20 minutes to get through. And it's out there on Laravel News. We'll make sure we link it up in the show notes. Thanks, Jeff Ocha. Yeah. And we always say we're not going to do this. We're not going to like talk about these sorts of articles because they're really difficult to describe. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> and we do it anyway because we're suckers for punishment. We are. And and because we literally, literally have like seven items because we just did this last week. We have seven <laughs> items to talk about. Do you know what? Now would be a really good time to speak about this week's sponsor. It would be a good time to talk about this week's sponsor. Wanted to take a minute to thank Laristream for being a sponsor again of the show for the second time in a row. Laristream is the location for the Laravel community to go to do any live coding. So previously, Adam Wath and Matt Stauffer, other people have used Twitch to do live coding. And Laristream is really hoping to kind of fill that niche in the Laravel community and create a centralized place where you can go see any Laravel related streams that you would like to see. They've been up and around 43 days now. They have over 600 members and 90 hours of streaming. If you've used it previously to this, you have may have noticed that there was a little bit of uh, latency. They had some issues with latency being around 30 seconds. They've cut that down to 10 seconds now. So it's completely usable and you can get really good feedback loop with your users who are watching. There's gonna be a new courses module that's rolling out as well. So you can have multiple streams belong to a single series. So it's a really great service, really easy to get started with. Michael, I think you've used it before previously, haven't you? I have, yeah, I've done a couple of streams on there. Unfortunately, I had some issues of my own in getting it set up, but don't let that put you off. It is super easy. I just had my own little gaffe <laughs> and ended up with the wrong screen resolution and the wrong settings in my application. But Jordan's done a lot of work to make sure that all the information is there now, all the settings that, that, that are recommended by Laristream based on your connection. Uh, really easy to get set up. There's some tutorials on how to use OBS to do the streaming. And yeah, it's it's just a great place to, to work with others, to share what you're working on and to, you know, really be part of the Laravel community in a different way. Yeah, so if, if doing live coding is something you've ever wanted to do, I would encourage you to head over to laristream.com, sign up, it's a free membership. There is no cost to it. You can get started up and running in about five minutes. So if you wanna try that out, please go do that. Thanks again to Laristream for sponsoring the show. Thanks, Jordan. Okay, what else we got? Getting started with Laravel model events. Have you ever used Laravel model events, Michael? You ever use those much? <laughs> I certainly have my the the whole the whole reason we we know each other is because of laravel model events really this is true <laughs> this is true should we talk about the origin story here uh, we can touch on it briefly yeah sadly it's no longer your the package that was uh, needed to solve that problem is no longer needed anymore it's still there you know i was looking at it the other day it's had just over fifty thousand installs now <laughs> nice job my, my my highest package install is thirty thousand. so you've doubled me up <laughs> so Events are a good way across Laravel to sort of delegate logic outside of where you would, you know, instead of doing a whole bunch of operations inside of a controller, for example, you can fire an event and then you can create listeners for those events to handle different tasks. So say you've got a user that signs up when they sign up and you add the record to the database, you could fire an event into Laravel's dispatcher saying that a user was subscribed and then you could have listeners which are responsible for different functionality that you might need to carry out when you know when that user is has subscribed so you might fire off an email you might set up a one month follow-up email things like that that's in the framework as a whole but the models themselves fire several different methods at different points in a model's life cycle so when you fetch a model from the database when you are creating so before it's been created and then subsequently after it's been created when you're updating saving deleting and restoring soft deleted records so there's there's 11 different methods that fire during the life cycle of an event that you can hook into for different reasons so 
I mentioned that this is how Jake and I met was that I wanted some way of intercepting model values that were empty strings or maybe just white space. So if someone just put space, space, space into a field, I would, when the model was being saved, grab all those fields and whichever ones were sort of labeled as being cast, like should be cast to null or saved in the database as null if they were empty. We would hook into that event. We would find all of the relevant fields. We would set them to null if they were empty and then the model would save to the database. So it's a good way in the model specifically to interact with different parts of their life cycle. Yeah, so I'll give a couple examples that are like concrete examples here. So I have one uh, event that, whenever the model so like i have these claims this concept of claims in one of our applications and those claims have documents that are associated with them and they live in a a specific file path so anytime that a claim is getting updated i will check to see uh, or actually sorry i i listen for the updated event to fire and when the updated event fires i have a listener that will check to see if the claim number or if the client id are dirty meaning they mm-hmm. have been changed from what they were previously. And if they have, what I need to do is the document path is actually named specifically to coincide with that client ID and that claim number. So if any, if either of those have changed, what I need to do is I actually need to do the, do the work of renaming that directory and updating mm-hmm. the file path on that, on that particular record. So the update event gets fired. And instead of having to go search through my my code for every single place where the update of where, where I may be updating a claim, I just have it handled in one specific class. I can test that class really easily and make sure it works every time. And now anytime that a claim record gets updated, I can know for sure that the associated file path will be updated and it will be uh, renamed. And so this is, I mean, this has saved me so many times because recently we had a, I mean, just a weird instance where on export, we have to actually update all the client IDs based on how old the file is when we get it. And I didn't even have to think about it. It just works. Like, so we're yeah. just doing it just as you normally would do. We're saying, hey, go look at all the client, go look at all these claims and go see how old they are and update the client ID. And as soon as we do it, that class just fires off, renames it, and we're good to go. We don't even have to think about it. So that's a perfect example of how those events can really be used and, and, and they're super powerful. It just it, it handles it across your entire code base by just writing it one time. Yes. And there's, and there's also, but uh, Paul in this article goes through all sorts of different examples for what you might be able to do. So he's got uh, the idea of observers in here and how you actually hook up the listeners and all that stuff. So definitely check that out. It will be in the show notes. Yeah. All right. Let's talk about Let's Encrypt Wildcard SSL certs. Michael, what is, what is a wildcard? So when, let's back up a little bit and talk about Let's Encrypt. So Let's Encrypt is a certificate authority that gives essentially free SSL certificates for everyone. If you've ever used Laravel Forge, this is integrated with that. So you can basically click a button and say, I would like an SSL certificate, please. And it will handle setting the certificate up and also making sure that it is renewed um, every 90 days because the, the certificates that Let's Encrypt issues have a 90 day expiry up until this week when you've done one of these certificates you've had to specify all of the domain names that you wanted to use which meant that if you wanted to have for example laravel-news.com you'd have to specify that and if you wanted to have www.laravel-news.com you'd have to specify that and later on if you thought 
about another subdomain that you wanted to add, something like links.laravel-news.com, you'd have to go back and get a new certificate that covers all three of those domains. But as of this week, Let's Encrypt now supports wildcard SSL certificates, which means that it makes things a lot easier and, and you don't have to reissue that certificate. You can basically just say, I want it for star.laravel-news.com and then anything that you need immediately and anything you want to add later on down the track will just work and it will be secured. So this is handy if you're, if you're building an application where you want to have user-specific subdomains and that way you know that all of those individual subdomains will be covered by your SSL certificate without having to specify, you know, Oh, I've got jakebennett.example.com and later I want to have michaeldorinda.example.com and then later, you know, Paul Redmond. You'd have to, previously you'd have to issue a new certificate that had each of those names each time you added one. So now it's, it's really simple to just specify that you want a wildcard and then you can use that and make sure that your entire site uses and all, subdomains and all are covered by your SSL certificate. Yep. Absolutely. Have you ever uh, have you ever been able to do these these free SSL certs with Let's Encrypt? How do you mean? Have you ever used them in Forge? I have used them in Forge. Yeah. Um. Up until up until sort of the last couple of sites that I've been using, they're really handy for um. A lot of times I'll, I'll use these for like personal projects or if it's just like something I just want to like hey yeah, let's throw HTTPS up there. I, I would mm -hmm. say if it's anything business critical, I might push you a little bit more towards something that has a little bit longer expiry date mm -hmm. now 90 days you think okay well certainly that's that's fine and most of the time it is but if your server just happens to have a problem like with being able to validate that on day 88 and you don't mm -hmm. catch it by day 90 now you're out of, now you don't have an ssl cert on that day 90 rollover yeah. right so it's just in those cases for something that's like it needs to be up all the time and taylor even said this too right like go get like a 10-year cert or something you know just go buy one. It's like 20 bucks a year, maybe something like that. Apply it and be done with it and don't have to worry about that stuff. Yeah. Let's Encrypt is an amazing, awesome service, not bashing it. It's just that the verification process, I've had it freak out on me a couple of times before and I've lost, mm -hmm. you know, it, it was like unsecured for a little bit of time and uh, it freaks people out because it's like, wait, wait a second. This is trying to direct me to a HTTPS domain, but it doesn't have a certificate. And then it says, you know, it warns you. It's like, this could be a malicious site or whatever. And that's just horrible. You don't ever want that to happen. So yeah, you, you don't want to be in a position where you've got users that are potentially turned away because something happens in that. Pro I mean, it's, it's quite reliable, but under the hood, it's kind of gnarly. Taylor's mentioned on on a number of occasions that it's not the nicest thing in the world to maintain in Forge, but obviously it's there because it's free. I've, for my last few sites, have used Cloudflare. So that gives the added bonus of having not just caching on your, on your site, but also end-to-end -end SSL from the client, like from the your user's browsers through Cloudflare and all the way to your backend server and that's that's all free and those certificates are like 12 months i think or maybe maybe even longer um but the whole process is much much nicer in my opinion nice but that's it awesome. is a little bit more manual yeah there was something recently something about chrome that's like going to require https for practically everything in like chrome 67 Pretty much everything. or something do you remember yeah, what that from, is I there think was the first something of july yeah, they've they've started, but essentially the the theory now is that there's no excuse to not have SSL. There are plenty of 
reliable free options out there. Certificates are not like certificates used to cost hundreds of dollars per year. We're we're long past that now. So Chrome, I think Firefox has started warning now if you're on on a website that doesn't have a certificate. I know that Chrome and Firefox both for quite some time have been warning if you're submitting like a username and password form and it's not over a secure connection, it would say, hey, you know, this is a is a problem. But from I don't know the specific version, but I'm pretty sure it's from the first of July. Chrome will start being really loud and obnoxious about notifying users if they're on websites that don't have certificates. Yeah, so I um, actually have to... So we have internal sites, right, that use our... our we just have like a bunch of subdomains. And um, you can't use Let's Encrypt on that because the, the DNS to those isn't open to the outside world. So you can actually local, verify yeah. the records. So you can't use Let's Encrypt on those. But mm-hmm. whatever. It's a great service. Definitely, definitely use it if you can. Okay. Let's hear what, let's look at this. How to use Font Awesome 5 SVGs with Laravel Blade. This is really helpful because I have often used this package of Adam Wathens for Blade, but it's never really clear to me what on earth I'm supposed to do or where I'm supposed to put the Blade files or how I'm supposed to reference them or anything like that. And I don't use it regularly enough that I remember each time that I have done it, so... This would be a post by Simon DePelchin that I will certainly have in my bookmarks and refer back to that basically goes through the process. In this example, it's using Font Awesome 5, but you could use it with Heroicons or Zondercons or any other SVG icons that you have. Adam Wathen wrote a handy little package that makes referencing the svgs in your blade templates really simple yeah so this is really this is nice because there's a couple different ways that you can include them i know that when he he had an episode where he had somebody on who on full stack radio who was talking specifically about svgs there's kind of two different ways to do it where you can inject them directly into the page and if you direct uh, inject them directly into the page, you have the ability to modify any of the attributes or any of the styles for any of the SVG elements that are on the page. So you can do it that way. And the other way you can do it is you can kind of inject them by reference. So you can have a sprite sheet that gets injected at the top of the page, and then you can use, I think, a use reference, and it will uh, locate that uh, elsewhere on the page. So what that's nice what's nice about that is i think it caches that sprite sheet for you so it only really has to load once so it's pretty cool but in any case the way that you can use it is you just say at svg so it's just a little blade directive and then you Mm -hmm. can uh, specify the svg icon that you want injected there and any additional classes that you might want on there really anytime i have to put an svg on my page if there's more than like one svg that i'm putting in i'm always using this library so it, I mean, literally takes five minutes to set up and worth its weight in gold. So you don't have to see all those nasty, all that crazy, nasty SVG code in there. Yeah. Yeah. Which I'm doing with a map right now. I have this really big map that I made. It's got all these tiny little pixels and I'm injecting it with this. So it's pretty handy. It looks really good. Yeah, it does. It certainly does. Thank you, Adam. And thank you, Simon. Any other, let's see here. Any other community links? Another cool community contribution that popped up in the Laravel links archive in the last well since the last time we spoke is implode.io now if you've ever used anything like JS bin or JS fiddle or any of those 
sort of code pen type solutions, you may have found yourself wondering if anything like that existed for Laravel. And now there is. So employ.io essentially allows you to pick a Laravel version from version 5.3 all the way up to the latest 5.6, as well as the PHP version to run that framework version against. And essentially what it lets you do is write code referencing you know, all of the Laravel helpers, the functions, the classes right in your browser. So if, you know, if you're doing any conversation, you know, if you're speaking with someone on Twitter or if you want to put some code up to answer a question on the Laracast forums or the Laravel.io forums, you can whack something together here. You can run it, make sure it's all working, save it, and then you can share it as a response so that, you know, it's not just writing code into a text area in the in the browser, you're actually making sure that, you know, the code that you're presenting and the solutions that you're offering are, are correct. So uh, it's a handy little service. I haven't used it myself, but I've heard it mentioned around the place a couple of times in the last week or so. Yeah, the only, my only thing that would be awesome is if you could pull in dependencies, if you could pull in composer dependencies. Yeah. Now, currently, you can't do that. I don't know if that's on the roadmap or anything, but that's the only thing that I would say would be awesome is if you could actually pull in a composer dependency, but you cannot yet. So still super handy, super, super handy to be able to give yes. little example pieces of code without having to uh, write out a gist or anything like that. Yeah, write out a gist or you know having to spin up a new new copy of Laravel on your computer and then write some code and then, exactly. and then put it into a gist or you know push up yeah. the, the code to GitHub. It's all here. It's all ready to go. It seems like a really good way to rapidly develop a small snippet to test and share. Yeah, I agree. Very cool. Okay, I think that's about it this episode. I think so. Thanks everybody for staying up with us. This is episode 59. If you'd like show notes for this episode, you can find them at laravel-news.com slash podcast slash 59. As always, if you like the show, please feel free to rate us up five stars in your podcatcher of choice or in iTunes. If you have any questions, feel free to reach out to us on Twitter at Jacob Bennett or at Michael Dorinda or at Laravel News. I think that's all of it. Thank that you everyone. All. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you, Laristream. Everybody go check that out right now. Literally take a minute, press pause, go to laristream.com, sign up, and say thanks to Jordan for sponsoring the show for us. That would be awesome. Yeah, definitely. There's, there is, As we said, there's over 90 hours of content there now. So if you're not sure if you want to have a go streaming yourself, then definitely check out some of the great content from the community at large. Excellent. Mr. Dorinda, it's always a pleasure. Same to you, Mr. Bennett. All right. Take it easy, my man. See you in two weeks. Bye.